The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald and you're listening to Blethered on the Big Light Network. My guest is Detective Superintendent Phil Capaldi. Phil is part of the Specialist Crime Division of Police Scotland, focusing on rape, human trafficking and prostitution with decades of experience across the board. Phil talks about human trafficking and forced prostitution in Scotland, how it's happening across the country and the steps Police Scotland take to stop it at its root. There's some tales of policing on the streets of Glasgow, including a machete-swinging individual on one side and an irate Glaswegian woman on the other. And we chat about Police Scotland's Don't Be That Guy ad campaign. You can find more information on the campaign at that-guy.co.uk. If you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it and maybe leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great help if you do. Cheers. Second police officer ever on the podcast, Detective Superintendent Phil Capaldi. Good morning, how are you? Morning, Sean. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, first one was uh, Simon McLean, former, he was in the Serious Crime Squad. All right. And things would have changed dramatically since he first started. Yep. What was, well, I, I suppose actually I'll first ask, where, where did you grow up? I was born and brought up in Glasgow. Um, and joined Strathclyde Police back in 1994. Uh, certainly a bit different um, mm. to the way it is now. Um, started off down in Ayrshire. Um, was sent there when I was when I was first posted. Um, spent two years down there, and then moved up to the city and uh, worked out at Mary Hill. So, what was it that made you want to join the police? I don't know. A sense of vocation, I think. Um, I, I think from a, from an early age, um, I had an attraction to be to be a cop, to want to be a cop. And the investigative side, the, the CID side, always always kind of sparked an interest in me. Um, so when I, when I finished up in uni in Edinburgh, um, I applied straight away at Strathclyde Police and was fortunate enough mm. to get in. I've always been quite curious about this because you see people that are kind of uniformed police and they seem to be other days and then there's others that are going to plain clothes. Is there a clear pathway? Can you bypass the uniform stuff or do you need to kind of start doing that? No, not really. And, and you know, again, you you learn your trade in effect as a uniform mm. cop. I think you learn, um, you learn how to speak to people and interact with people first and foremost, because a lot of what we do is about speaking to people. Mm. Um, and, and I think from that point of view, um, you, you really do build up those skills as a uniform cop. And then, I think you you develop an interest into the investigation side of it, whether you're dealing with a car that's been broken into or a house that's mm. been broken into. It's about, you know, getting to the end of that and finding out who was responsible. Mm. Um, and that's always that's always interested me. And I think the more complicated it gets, um, the more interesting it becomes. How how long did you work in a uniform before you moved over into the more serious stuff? I was about three years uh, in uniform in total um, to start out with and then went into a plain clothes team um, at Mary Hill. And, and at that point, we were, we were targeting car crime. There was a lot of stolen cars in mm. Mary Hill and Postle and, and Rock Hill at the time. Um, Milton, and then, Milton, the car theft capital. Absolutely, it was. <laughs> absolutely. Um, Mid-90s, um, it, was, it was chaos every night. 
there was a stolen car. Sunny Law Square was the was the dumping ground. <laughs> we used to have bonfires of cars in Sunny Law Square at, at one point. We used to dread the 5th of November because we knew there would be stolen cars coming up there. Um, and it, it was almost seen like a big game by some of the, some of the boys that were running about at the time. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, that moving on from there, um, moving on from that playing closed team, um, I moved into the CID and then it was really tackling serious criminality at that point. What was, so that would have been sort of mid to late 90s, would that have been? Late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. What were the sort of predominant cases and issues and figures that I suppose you could talk about? that Violence. Violence. Um, the extent of the violence at the time. Gang violence, organised crime groups, drugs, mm. um, you know, Apostle, Milton, Rock Hill, Mary Hill um, was, you know, almost the drugs capital of Scotland mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and that fueled a lot of organised crime, which again then fueled a lot of violence. So stabbings, shootings um, were, were pretty prominent and pretty common at, around that time. Um, compared to now, you know, where the violence is nowhere near at the levels we saw in the, in the 90s, in the late 90s. Do, could you have a theory on why that would be? Do you think it does it comes down to does it come down to pounds and pence, and you just think it would it would what's the word bad for business? Aye, bad for business. Aye, to a point. But then you've seen some of the reporting around some of the organised crime groups that that are still prominent in Glasgow mm-hmm. and and the kind of violence that they dish out. Um, I don't know. It's difficult to put your finger on it. I think. Society has moved on a wee bit. I think if you look across the Western Hemisphere, uh, you know, the developed countries mm-hmm. of, the, of the world, um, significant violence has dropped across the board. Why, I'm not entirely mm. sure. People becoming, I suppose, more sensible um, or realise the consequences of the things they do. Was it like, was it the early 2000s or the sort of late 90s that police got under, that would have been Strathclyde police at that point? Yep when they started to undertake this sort of campaign against knife violence after, you know, Glasgow being like murder capital of Western Europe and I think knife crime has significantly plummeted. Were you involved in anything in like that at that time? No, but I remember it really well because at one point I worked in the same office as the Violence Reduction Unit, mm-hmm. um, spearheaded by John Carnahan, um, who was Detective Chief Superintendent at the time. And, and uh, along with Karen McCluskey, they really pushed us you know, the, the the whole interventions part, early and effective intervention around um, street violence, particularly um, a lot of the the young younger boys in the scheme engaged in, uh, in violence, mm. recreational violence almost. Um, and it was at that point it started to, they kicked off and it started to make an impact. Mm. I remember seeing a document it's like an American documentary and it's yep. on YouTube do you know the one I'm talking yeah, about yeah, and yeah, on yeah. like Saracen Street and all that they it's, are. it's mental kind of looking back at it and it it seems like two different worlds you're watching it and you're like god that seems like the, the Razor Gangs of the 50s and it's like no wait that's when I went to school like it was I was there at the time uh, like I was Wild there at West. the time and you know the drug problem we had up in Saracen at that point in time was pretty horrendous Um it was almost it was almost epidemic the amount of people who were using heroin in mm. particular, um, but the violence that went with it was was awful. Um, 
you know, and we would see that routinely working a late shift, working a night shift at Mary Hill, um, covering Postle Park, covering the Milton. Um, the, the, the violence you would see um, from one person to another was, was horrendous. Mm -hmm. You know, not just knives, but machetes or axes or swords. I mean, who's a sword? Well, do you know what? Just one thing. I want to get to the bottom, and you might be able to answer this. So you always or very often will read about some violent incidents taking place in the streets of Glasgow, and it will be like, um, the suspect, 27, um, was apprehended with a crossbow. And you're like, <laughs> yep. sorry, who's who's dishing out the medieval weaponry? Like, where are you going? Like, hold on, I'm just going to nip back to 1742 and get my crossbow. Like, <laughs> It's crazy, isn't it? But, but yeah, people have these kind of weapons. Aye. And people acquire them. People buy them off the internet. Crossbow. Yeah, crossbows. I, that, I, I don't know if I've ever told my crossbow story. Not my crossbow story, but it's... Um, <laughs> I remember if I have told this. I'll tell it anyway. So back in years ago when I first went to college, I didn't last particularly long, but right. I studied practical journalism. Mm. And uh, as part of the course, so you learned about Scots law, defamation of differences and reporting stuff. You you did shorthand because it was it was actually before like iPhones would have had things to record. Yep. And you did like general reporting. So we get sent to the sheriff court. Uh -huh. And uh I'm sorry, I'll, I'll tell it as I go and then if I need to kind of censor myself, I will. And uh, so one of the cases was there was a woman in Kirkintillock who was on trial for shooting a crossbow through her, pal, her old pal's window. Right. And I'm kind of sitting thinking, why? Like, what? But I'm telling the story and it turned out she had a dirt bike, which, so it's just getting funnier as it goes. And she was about 50 though, which I just was like, you wouldn't expect a 50-year-old woman to have a dirt bike. No. And uh, I knew the, I could picture the house because they read out her address. And I was like, I used to collect the window cleaning money there. And she had like this wee veranda and she was on the ground floor so you could open the, uh, like the, the gate. Mm -hmm. So the story was, her pal had asked to borrow a dirt bike. She said no, he just went and took it anyway. He's crashed it. The neighbour has seen him putting it back, has told, by the way, your pal dropped your dirt bike, it's all smashed up, it was him that had it. She's went and got her crossbow. And uh, all hell's broken loose. But then the funniest bit was then when the, sh the clerk or whoever it was gets up to read out like verbatim what was said when she was arrested. Yep. And uh, I'll remove some words to sanitise it a wee bit, but it was, I'm telling you right now, get your fucking stupid horns off me and your wee fucking pal, and it was just get on the sham, like falling off the chair, like laughing. Yep. And... Uh, I get chucked out as well. No, but the, re <laughs> the reason I get chucked out is because when the thing was ended and the police officer that was there and he's like, here, this is a court, this isn't for you to sit and have a laugh. And I'm going, mate, like, what humans not finding that funny? Yep. But then Madonna and Guy Ritchie had just been divorced maybe a month before uh -huh. and they read out, the next case is the Crown versus Guy Ritchie. And I said to him, do you think he turned up Stephen at Madonna's door and get lifted? <laughs> and then he's just like, oh. <laughs> Put out. Um, it's, it's obviously like a dark job at times is there anything that sticks out as being funny even if it was sort of unintentionally funny at the time or shouldn't it be I'm putting you in the spot with that one but I yeah, just always lots, like to ask people that I suppose lots of things um, yeah some that I can talk about some that I can't um, nothing that immediately springs to mind mm -hmm. I mean that, I think I think you know when you've when you've been around a long time you've dealt with you've dealt with a lot of death um whether that's natural causes whether it's you know through drugs 
whether it's homicide, um, there are there are sometimes a flash of light in what's otherwise a really dark day, and it's something really innocuous that that you'll maybe see or somebody will say just off the cuff, and and you know to break that to break that darkness almost mm. you, you just uncontrollably fall about laughing. Um, so there has been occasions like that. Uh, talking about individual cases, now I'll steer away from that. Mm. But it was funny when I was driving in here today, past the bus stop, I used to work here um, as a uniform sergeant when I got promoted from Mary Hill. And there was one night shift, we're driving by the bus, I was driving by that bus stop today, and, and, and there was one night shift when there was a guy standing at the bus stop, somebody had come into the front office at Cranston Hill, Cranston Hill Police Station, it's now shut, uh, and said, that, that guy at the, the bus stop's got a machete. What? I I's got a machete inside his jacket. So grab one of the, the guys in the shaft and said, Come on out, we're gonna go we'll go and speak to him and uh, uh, and see if he's got a machete. <laughs> so as we approached him, boy was drunk, uh, and out of nowhere takes the machete from the inside of his jacket and swings it, swings it at your head, swings it at my head. Um so you know, thankfully he was drunk, he kinda staggered about a wee bit, we managed to get the machete off him and get him handcuffed. And what stuck in my head was as I was driving by, because I had a chuckle, there was a wee, a wee woman walking by, um, drunk, <laughs> going up the road. And as we were rolling about, <laughs> rolled about the, the ground with this guy, who was putting out a bit of a fight because um, he didn't want to get, get locked up, she just stopped and started giving us a tirade of abuse <laughs> because we were locking this guy up. So uh, it's strange the silly things that, that, that kind of stick in your head. But I've been involved in lots of things um, over the years. Um, some that you, you want to forget about, others that, that you can't really forget about mm. that, that stick in your head. And yeah, sometimes they're best left where they should be uh, in the back of your head. <clears throat> mm. I was going to ask that because you're saying that stuff that you, you kind of don't want to, you don't want to open up that box and that. And yeah. Really not to go full... 2022 because I I, I I dislike the whole uh, over eagerness to get into the let's talk about mental health chat I think it can it can be disingenuous but yeah. I do I do wonder just ch- curiosity wise has have things changed dramatically now in which you, you'll see the police force offering support to people because I've got pals in the police and some of the stories here and you're like oh my god like I would last a day yeah. with some of the stuff I think we're way better than where we were. We've mm. moved it on significantly. And again, there's that recognition that that some of the stuff that you see every single day is going to have an effect on mm. you. Um, and there has been occasions in the past where it's had an effect on me. You get over it or you deal with that mm. and you move it on. Um, but we are, we're a million times um, better at dealing with it now than we were back in the day. Do you think because for you it has always been vocational that, that is part of the the way in which you can just move yourself along that process. Because for me, being in the police isn't a vocation. So if I, even when I hear about my next door neighbour uh, joined the police and she was telling us on like her first day, having to go and get a dead body and all that. And I was yeah. saying, no, I was I was like, I would hand in my, like, there's my hat, there's my badge, like I'm away, I can't do this. Uh, it's the unpredictability of it, you know, uh, whether it's your first day or your last day. In fact, Again, when I was a detective at Mary Hill, we were night shift and um, we were called to the scene of a stabbing. A guy turned up at another guy's door in the Milton and stabbed him to death in the doorstep. And the cop who turned up, it was her first day in the job and she's right. standing there holding a the bloodstained knife. 
uh, and you're like, did you do crime scene containment uh, when you were at the police college? Yeah. Well, put the knife down then. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, she didn't know what to do or how to react because mm. it was the first time she'd seen a dead body. And probably moreover, this guy had been stabbed 20, 30 times in the chest and it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. So it's the unpredictable nature of what we do and, and almost you deal with one incident at a time and you and you compartmentalise it. You put it in mm -hmm. a wee box, you deal with it, you move on because something else will come along. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get to switch off in the sense of, let's just say, so we were talking about going to an event where there's a lot of people. Yep. Chances are you go into the toilets, you're going to see some naughty behaviour. Yep. Do you just need to go, there's nothing I can do here. I need to just turn a blind, not turn a blind eye, but you're kind of limited in what you're able to do. I think it depends. It depends what you see. Mm. Um, there's been occasions when I've been off duty where I've seen serious violence being committed mm. from one person to another. And at that point, you need to intervene because you don't know when that's going to turn into a murder because I've seen enough homicides where mm. one punch, one kick to the head has caused somebody's death. Mm. So when you, when you see something like that happening, um, there's a time and a place to to, to intervene. On other occasions, um, yeah, okay, you're a police officer, but it, it's known about when to intervene and when not to escalate the situation. Mm -hmm. um, if there's a cop nearby, you would give him a nod to say, by the way, you want to have a look at yeah. Um, but would I dive in, um, you know, when I'm off duty, when I don't have access to a radio or a set of handcuffs or anything like that? Just most certainly ain't worth a squeeze, is it? Well, you're for more, something innocuous. Yeah, you're more likely to come off with a second prize. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reality. That's, you know, that was an interesting thing you said there about one punch and all that. It's something I always think when you see people in a night out and all alcohol, it blurs the lines and it changes the dynamic, yeah. but it's like, there's probably so many, there's probably so many people that have found themselves woken up in the jail and been like, what's happened? It's just been, it's been a punch or yeah. uh, one kick and that's changed everybody's lives forever. I reckon, I mean, I worked at major investigations for the best part of three years. Prior to that, I was in Drumchapel for three years. Uh, I was a detective inspector in Drumchapel and I've maybe seen a dozen one punch murders mm. um, through the years. One punch, one kick. Um, started out as nothing started out as an argument over nothing one punch and then you've got somebody lying dead on the pavement you've got somebody else who's probably going to go to jail for life and you've got two families that are completely ruined by the whole thing mm -hmm. over nothing um, and it's it, it's really galling sometimes when when you see things like that happening because it, it's senseless it, you know it's it's completely senseless and it's over in a split second. All it takes is five seconds to land a punch. Somebody's drunk, they're unsteady in their feet, they fall straight back and they, they smash their head on the ground and and it's it's done at that point. I know somebody went went to went name him, but somebody went to jail for something like that and he, he was he wasn't the aggressor either. Yep. And but there was an opportunity to kind of be like, This is this is pointless. To and, walk away from it. And uh, and then went to jail now for too long. It happened to Palamine as well, killed. Um, and it was the wee guy that did it was I'm not going down that road but 
when you hear the details of the incident, you're like, that was avoidable for everybody. Yeah. And it's it like, usually, lives are changed forever. It usually is, Sean. Mm. From the outset, you know, if somebody just sucks it up and walks away, mm -hmm. rather than, no, I'm going to front it out, but a bravado in front of the rest of the crowd, and then it all goes horribly wrong. Just go and get your chippy and go up the road, man. Yeah, kebab and get up the road. Aye. Um, the before we, I'd like, I'd love to talk about the, the don't be that guy stuff. Yep. Um, and the police, but a more of a serious one, and I won't spend too much time on this because I don't want to conflate the two issues. Um, but you, in September twenty one, you were in the media speaking about the human trafficking increase. Yeah. I find that morbid, not fascinating, but sort of it piques my interest. Yeah. <laughs> How do we even define human trafficking in this day and age? Because people would, would assume oh, that doesn't happen here, that happens in, in third world countries. Yeah, I think some people have got the, the Hollywood um, the Hollywood view of human trafficking where people are getting bundled, blindfolded in the back of a, a truck with a, an AK-47 stuffed mm. in their back. Um, it doesn't always play out that way. It very rarely plays out that way. So, yeah, human Human trafficking is prominent. I think taking it right back to the start, wherever there's money to be made, you'll find organised crime. Mm. In order for them to make money, there has to be against drugs. And what we tend to see a lot of in Scotland is labour exploitation um, and sexual exploitation uh, for the purposes of prostitution. Mm -hmm. So predominantly we see Eastern European gangs being involved in uh, bringing women from mainland Europe into Scotland and the wider UK um, and putting them into brothels and, and and working them as prostitutes. So if you think about buying a kilo of cocaine, for example, you probably buy a kilo of coke for about 30 grand, you sell it for about 60, so you make 30, 30,000 pounds on it. If you have one girl involved in prostitution, one woman involved in prostitution, and she makes £2,000 a week, and that's not unrealistic, then multiply that by 52. It's £100,000 a year. But if you've got five women being involved in prostitution, it's half a million pounds a year. And that's a reoccurring payment. Mm -hmm. It's not a one-off. So there's less risk involved. Bringing people through borders is much easier. You pose as a genuine tourist. And you repeatedly recycle the, the the women involved and you make a lot of money out of it. So there's Eastern European crime groups. We've had a few. In fact, we're, we're, we're going to Hungary next week to Budapest because we've got a new investigation that's up and running wow. uh, with the Hungarian police around an organised crime group bringing women into Scotland for the purposes of sexual exploitation. We had one um, which we'd been running for nearly two years. It was that complex and that that it was so extended um, with a Romanian crime group um, who were exploiting women. And we estimate they probably made, in the time that we looked at them, over about a four-year period, they made about £5 million. Um, so that case has now been prosecuted in Romania and all their assets have been seized. The money to be made is eye-watering. Mm -hmm. It really is. Because, I mean, their overheads are probably minimal. I, I doubt they've got money getting paid into pension plans. And No, I mean, <laughs> the reality is investment in property. Put your money into property mm. and then, you know, you get the accumulated value of the property. Um, but they live like kings. 
mm-hmm. in, in in their country of origin because you know the the money is so much worth so oh, much more. Yeah, it will go so much further. That's and and do these where would you even find? <laughs> I'll rephrase that. It sounds like I'm saying where would you find a brothel? So I can go and right, okay, hit one up. But I mean, <laughs> it's just it's like that. Just wouldn't cross my mind. You think brothel? You think CD backdoor place in Amsterdam? I don't know in Amsterdam. Or, um, I suppose, you're saying if they're everywhere, would you honestly find them in in every area in Glasgow? Do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know we, we've we've always said, and it's well documented. I'm saying it that adult services websites. So you've got two main uh, adult services websites who advertise women um, across the UK. It's not illegal. To, to run those adverts. It's not illegal to engage in a sexual act off street in a private residence between two consenting adults. It's not illegal. Mm. Um, so you'll find a lot of these adverts uh, are contained within these sites. Mm-hmm. And um, the difficulty is to try and identify which women are being exploited, mm-hmm. which women are being trafficked, and that's quite hard sometimes. Yeah, and if I, I would imagine, or would this be commonplace that you would go in and they would say, no, I'm not, I'm fine, like I'm here of yeah. my own accord? Yep. A lot of the women that we come across, uh, particularly from Eastern Europe, uh, don't identify as themselves as being exploited. Mm. Um, what what the, the traffickers tend to do is offer them a cut, um, so they will keep a proportion of what they earn. And the reality is they're coming from really, really deprived areas uh, in, in Eastern Europe that, that where, you know, the, the money they are earning and then sending home enable their family to live a much better life. Mm. Um, so the minute they, they I suppose, um, out their trafficker or out their exploiter, that money stops for them. Probably puts their family in some sort of danger as well. Well, yeah, and there's always that kind of kind of consequential risks for their families in their own country. Um, but it's it, it's horrendous, and and you know the guys, and it is predominantly men um, who make the money out of this. They don't care. Mm. No humanity. No sense of um, decency or moral decency in any way shape or form it's about the money mm-hmm. uh, and it's about making as much money as possible I watch one of my favourite programmes is uh, 24 Hours in Police Custody and <laughs> okay. like, I'm obsessed yeah. with it <laughs> and, uh, right. but there was uh, there was an episode about breaking these human trafficking rings and how uh, border patrol or border control or whatever are trained to try and spot them and, and yep. see women and, and the women don't realise they're being exploited and how they're having to now educate kids in schools in Romania to, to say things like, look, if somebody promises you X, Y, and Z, here's the kind of reality of it. And it said about how they would take their passport off them. Yep. They don't have access to any money. So it's like, if you put me in, <clears throat> excuse me, if you put me in Bucharest, took my passport off me, my money, I couldn't really speak Romanian, then I think I would be, your social mobility is so limited and restricted that you would think I don't have any way out here and then if somebody said and I'll pop over to Rob Royston and I'll kill your mum yep. then I'm I'm hardly likely to say to say a thing in it because you always think people always say how do you know just walk out you know it's not really that straightforward yeah it's not it's not that straightforward at all and I think you know well, our kind of byline is if it, if it sounds too good to be true it probably is yeah um, and 
you know, the the I think the the extent of it because you know again people are hiding in plain sight. Um, you you could walk by women in the street and and not by an island. Mm. And what we always try and the message we always try and get out there is that you know recognize the signs where somebody may have been trafficked or, or are being exploited and and report them to us. Mm-hmm. What we what we usually find is it's a single a single instance of something happening coming our way, we start to develop it and look more at the background of it, build up the bigger picture and it, it turns into something much mm. bigger. In fact, you are just talking about, you know, Romanian women in, in border border force stopping them at airports. Uh, we got we got a woman stopped, a 17-year-old uh, woman stopped at Edinburgh Airport yesterday uh, on a Bucharest flight. That's sick. And we suspected she was going to be exploited. Mm. Um, and she got put back on a flight to Bucharest and she was getting picked up at the other end by uh, the contacts we have in the Romanian Organised Crime Director um, because we see it quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So we've got those interventions in place. That's good. It's, it's interconnected to the point that you can speak to the Romanians and say, by the way, we're sending somebody back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Intercept yeah. them. I think, uh, you know, there's there's a kind of misunderstanding sometimes that, that w- w- some people have got a very insular view of or you only see what's happening around you. Trafficking's completely different. Borders mm. mean nothing to traffickers or exploiters. Yeah. It's just another hurdle to get over. It's about moving people to more lucrative markets where they can make more money, mm. and, and that's the way we have to see it as law enforcement. The um, That's obviously a, a very extreme end of the spectrum of the scale and that type of issue to, to come further down to the, the other end in the, in the sort of seedlings of of those types of things um the don't be that guy campaign yeah uh, with police scotland of which i was i was in the advert um I, if people may have seen it it's been kind of across social media it's been had quite a bit of news coverage um how do you feel about what well, i've got so loads of questions about your experience in the police yeah um with with this type of thing how have you how do you feel about the campaign overall? Do you think it's it's massively worthwhile? Is it overdue? Like, what's your thoughts? Yeah, it is. Absolutely, it's worthwhile. Uh, and is it overdue? Yeah, definitely. I think um, we obviously we started off last year, um, and and what we did last year was pretty hard hit. Nobody had ever really kind of called it out like that before, um, and all we were doing really was kind of mirroring what. Um, support agencies, uh, women's groups in particular, had been telling us for years mm. that, um, that that men had to influence other men's behaviour uh, and, and call out some of that behaviour. And we know, we know categorically that there is a, a link between that kind of misogynistic behaviour at the outset and serious sexual offending. And not every, again, to clarify, not every man will go on and do that. But it's the, it's the, pervasiveness of those attitudes mm-hmm. where they go unchecked so it's okay it's okay to be that way it's okay to act that way so um we decided to do something different and again to to kind of move on that message a wee bit more we had this year's uh we had this year's um campaign and i think it does move on a wee bit more and, and what we're trying to say what we're trying to say in no uncertain terms is um if you stand back and, and watch it taking place, you contribute to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I suppose you you take a mate one side, you have a word. You don't try and humiliate people in front of everybody else. It doesn't work. No. You know, the simple psychology around it is it doesn't work. But, you know, if, 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 if you don't do that and you allow it to take place, then, you know, are you condoning that kind of behaviour and that kind of, that mm. kind of attitude? It's quite a multifaceted approach and I had a, I've spoken about it with a couple of pals as well and one of my pals was saying, oh, what, she can't ever have a joke anymore. And it was like, no, but there's a, there is a clear line. For yeah. example, the, the, one of the examples we used was, so you see, see the three of you are sitting in a bar and you see somebody you fancy and one of you says, oh, I would give it a lot for her. Amazing. You're like, oh, okay, right, so you're saying you fancy somebody, it's not really a massive problem. Yeah. But it's when it steps over into it and you're like, oh, that's a bit, I'll just say it, it's a bit rapey. Like, I don't, none of my pals, I don't think any know would, would kind of be, go down that, that line. But it, I think it's, it's applying your, your own common sense and logic and thinking, right, that's a bit much, whether it's get harassing somebody. And harassment, I suppose, comes in, and I'll ask what you think in terms of definitions, but I think harassment comes in various different ways. It could be, no leaving somebody alone when it's kind of very obvious and I think that then comes back to the by the way you're steaming you don't realise she's not really up for up for having a chat yep. with you here I suppose you ask a hundred women how many times they've been harassed by a guy in a bar mm. all you need to do is ask and every one of them will have a story to tell you every Pro- single one it's probably happened that night yep <laughs> every they? single one ask a hundred guys how many times they've been hassled in a bar by mm. a woman and you'll be lucky if you get any responses. Yeah. And women shouldn't have to be that way, you know, where they go out and, and you know, they won't go to a certain pub or they won't go to a certain place because guys just hassle them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't I don't think that um, that's ever acceptable or should be accepted. But, I, again, I suppose a really crude example, Sean, do you ever say to your, your mate when you're leaving them in a pub or you've been at the dancing with them and you you say to them, going to give me a phone when you get up the road? Uh, never. No. To, to female friends, I but to a male friend, never. Why? Yeah. It's, it's sort of self-explanatory, isn't it? Because yeah. the guy isn't in any form of particular danger. So unconsciously, you know that that person may be in danger. Yeah. But but what prompts that in your head? Mm. So from that point of view, I think, uh, you know, it'd be great where, where uh, women wouldn't have to say that to each other, that make sure you get a taxi or make sure you give me a phone so I know you go home safe mm. uh, and why that doesn't apply to men. So um, I think, uh, you know, this is kind of kick-starting some of that, kick-starting mm. some of those conversations. You, you, you see the usual pushback or you see criticisms, criticisms and we'll focus on some specific criticisms. Um, and while I'm not here to say, and that's because I was part of it, to say this campaign's perfect, it's completely flawless, um, society is completely without fault, but it's like, we have to start somewhere, and yep. why not start? But I, I think, I suppose starting the conversation is is the thing that leads to action, because you're not going to go from nothingness to 10 steps sort of down the line as a sort of, it's an incremental progress, a process, sorry, isn't it? Yeah. I'd much rather not deal with 2,500 rapes every single year. Mm. I, I'd, I'd love to prevent every single one. Um, what we're seeing is probably worst manifestation of that behaviour. 
mm. when a rape is reported to us. Um, and the reality is that you're right, we do have to start somewhere. And it's a societal issue. It's not a policing issue. Yeah. We see we see the outcome or we see the, the, the worst case scenario of when that manifests itself into a physical act. But um it's a societal issue and, and you know, it's for society to address. Here's a really extreme example. And uh I mean, I'm, I would actually state because you know sometimes people can interpret things in their own way. I'm not using this as a a gratuitous um, example and and not taking into consideration the severity of what happened. But so last year, when the "Don't Be That Guy" campaign was kicking off, and I had um, I'd recorded a podcast as part of the campaign, yeah. and we had to suspend it for a month because it came right at the time. I think of the sentencing of Wayne Cousins, the, yeah. the Sarah Everard killer. Now, when you look at, in hindsight, I mean, all the details come to light and you find out about that guy, about his partner, about the fact that his colleagues referred to him as like rapey or something along those lines. Yep. And there in itself is, I'm not saying that a word in his ear would have prevented something, but you're like, right, there is a point where intervention was required, where people felt unsafe around him and it may be people could have said well it's not my problem he's not my pal I don't know him I am just going to leave him yeah he's a bit of a weirdo yeah. and you think but he didn't wake up and become that guy it has been this evolutionary process in which he went unchecked you know that is obviously a massively extreme example and I'm not saying somebody who can't take the hint in a bar is is then going to go and be that way but it's a perfect example in it of yeah, I think first and foremost, Wayne Cousins betrays everything it means to be a police officer to uphold the law to have any sort of common decency, and mm. he is where he deserves to be. Yeah, um, and you know, I think across policing, right across the UK, I think we all hung our heads in shame that day, um, knowing the the detail of what what had had been done uh, and your heart goes out to Sarah Everard's family ah. and, and how they heal that I'm, I'm not entirely sure I think people like Wayne Cousins people who have sexual attractions towards children sex offenders um, that I have dealt with through the years you're right, they don't wake up one morning and decide that this is what they're going to do. They've mm. harboured these interests for a long time, for years usually, and all it takes is an opportunity. Mm. Um, but it's the validation of their views, the validation of their thinking. The fact that nobody steps in at any point to check them and stop them um, sometimes gives them that green light to go on and, and offend. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you do, you make a really good point. Not everybody who makes an inappropriate comment, in fact, very few people who make inappropriate inappropriate comments will go along, go on to offend in that way. Um, but we shouldn't be validating that in any way, shape or form. Yeah. I, so I would, the sort of analogy or the image that's springing to mind for me is like um, a match and just extinguishing it before it actually is able to take flame. Yep. And when, it, when it's that wee spark and sort of intervening it, across the board, I mean, even I remember being a kid and um, 
Well, here, here's actually an example. I don't know why this has just come back to mind. It's funny how the brain works. Yeah. So I remember being at uh, Glasgow Cross. No, it was like the Tron Gate. Mm-hmm. Aye, with my mum. And I must have been like eight, seven or eight. And there was somebody in front of us at the cash line dressed a wee bit alternatively. Okay. And the boys in my street were pretty harsh. Anyway, they would define people and anybody who didn't dress like us or look like us, they'd be like, check the neck of him, check the state of him. Yep. And you pick this up. So I would have been like primary five, right? So I would have been eight or nine. And just by auto- automatically, I remember some the person in front of us and me turning to my mum and going, check the state of him. And to me, really, that did mean he's dressed different. I actually had to try and defend my eight-year-old self. I wasn't <laughs> being really nasty. It, fuck me, did she go through me? Yep. Took me out the cash line, like took me out the queue because she was waiting to get money for, I don't know, go get something to eat or whatever it was. Took me out and went through me. Yep. Le- like, even though I was just a wee boy, left me without a name and then kind of was softer about it and was like, that's not on. That person's done nothing to you. How would you feel if somebody said that about you, about me? Yep. I honestly see remembering how, but I still feel so bad. I wish I could apologise to the guy. I was eight. He, yep. he, he doesn't care. But I never, ever, ever forgot it. And it always stays at good parenting, to be honest. But it's stuck at the forefront of my mind. And it's something I've always, I mean, I was conscious of it. And I remember at the time being like, I am actually conscious of people's feelings. So I don't know why I've just done that. But I did because it went, it was unchecked it, it, yeah. and, until that point. And then it's it's always stayed in my mind, like that life lesson I got back then. Well, I suppose, yeah, just Going back a wee bit as to what we were saying, so you're hanging about with a bunch of boys. Aye, okay, you were only kids at the time. Aye. But you're hanging about with a bunch of boys, and everybody said that, and it was all right. And Aye, because it was just one of those things. You know, you dig somebody up because they looked a wee bit different, or they weren't the same as you. Yeah. And then you take that out of that environment, and then you put it in a different environment where you're with your mum, you're in the middle of town, you see some guy, and you automatically revert to checking a cat ham. Suddenly, it's not acceptable anymore. Aye. Because you're not in that environment. But your mates have all said, that's all right. No, that's what we all say. Yeah. Does that make it right, that. though? Well, boys will be boys. No, no it, it doesn't. And I think while they're, they're two very sort of separate realms or spheres, the, the concept is, yeah, is the very much the same. same isn't right? it? Yeah, definitely. With um, you saying you, you've worked in, or you, you've had to deal with cases of sort of sexual assault and rape and that things, do you ever see or can you think of any like recurring patterns of... Say, say a victim's given their timeline of events mm-hmm. and because again it's not going to be well I was walking down the street and we crossed eyes for one second and then I was I was attacked yep. not not at all times you know often the thing as well like they say a lot of sexual assault victims the perpetrator is often more often than not known to them that's true yeah it is it's absolutely true and thankfully um, instances of stranger rape where there's no prior contact between the victim and the and the suspect mm-hmm. are really really rare. Um, and again, I think I, in all my time, I've been around for nearly twenty nine years, and, and in all my time, I can probably c- count on, on on one, if not two, hands the amount mm-hmm. of uh, the amount of, of true instances where somebody has been walking. You know that classic. I suppose Hollywood scenarios, yeah. somebody's walking along a road and, and is dragged off and and, and, um, and subjected to a sexual assault. So they are very rare. Yeah, more often than not, we're seeing acquaintance rapes. 
we're seeing new acquaintance rates, particularly via, um, you know, hookup sites. Um, I think everyone will know that the kind of sites I'm talking about without naming them in mm-hmm. particular, you know, you can swipe left or right. <laughs> um, so we, we see a lot of, of rapes uh, arising from that. And again, I, I think, you know, the messaging around agreeing to have sexual contact with somebody you've never ever met and turning up a location that the, you don't know and you've never been to before yeah. is going to be a bad thing. Yeah. And and again, the more often than not, we see a lot of domestic rapes. Um, so d- rapes that have occurred within a domestic context, whether it's a, a married couple or boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, partners, yeah. um, where an individual will, will act out in a way with, with one victim, and then when we start to scratch the surface and we start to look into their past and their background, before you know it, we uncover four, five, six, ten women, and he's done exactly the same thing. Yeah. And he's just moved on. What you're saying with the uh, the sort of domestic stuff, that comes all the way around, and, and people meeting in hookup sites and that, that comes yep. around to, takes us all the way back to that original male sexual entitlement, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, and I think that you know, I, I'm going. I'm going from the the instances that are reported to us and the ones that we see every day, um, and some of the individuals we come across. Again, when we start looking at their background, they've been really active on on some of the hookup sites. They've been really active um, in messenger type apps. Mm. They've been really active uh, to try and proactively engage with women. Yeah. Um, and when their advances are refused or rebuked, for example, they get they get pretty intimidating. They play out in a certain way, um, and there's always a, a kind of veiled threat of violence there mm. um, that we see quite often. It's not not necessarily physical violence, but threats and coercion. Oh yeah, um, shaming people. Um, belittling them, you know that that whole element of power and control, the power and control dynamic. Just as we kind of wrap up, and not to put this at the end, but more so to kind of finish on this. It's not that I'm sneaking it in, but there yeah. are there are criticisms as well. And we saw there was a, an article in the Sunday Post um, that came out. I won't name the the woman involved because that's yeah. it's up to her if she wants to do that. Even though she's in the press, I don't want to shine further light on her. But there's criticisms that are coming in saying. Well, the police have got some cheek. Um, you know, they haven't been they have been far from perfect over the the uh over the years. And on one hand I'm like, yeah, okay, fair criticism. But on the other hand, I kinda think, well, is this not now then a an opportunity to try and put things right? You know, because as you say, it's a societal issue. It's it's not it's not just specific or unique to, to police Scotland. Yeah. Oh, well, where are the the, the media article you're referring to and I, and I read it on Sunday as well um, and we don't get it right all the time I think we've said that we've said that on a number of occasions I think the Chiefs apologised for the way that that was dealt with and sometimes you know that, that apology won't be enough uh, and I totally accept the fact that somebody's still aggrieved about what's happened to them mm. because you know again knowing the details of that um, it was horrendous 
But I think you made the point that, you know, the police is an extension of society and will incorporate people who are part of society. And some, thankfully, um, very few will have those kind of views and will play out those views in the nature of their employment. We don't want them. Mm. They are not welcome as police officers. Um, we don't want them anywhere near us. And I think this is a step in the right direction to try and root some of that out. Um, because that kind of behaviour is not conducive to actually being a police officer. Mm. Notwithstanding it's unprofessional, but we don't need people with those kind of views, those kind of ideas um, in the organisation, same as we don't want anybody with racist or you know extreme political views anywhere near policing, because again, you have an element of... Um, standing in society and the the last thing we want to do is erode that trust and i completely appreciate you're right as part of society we also as an organization need to get our own house in order mm. and i think this is a really good starting place yeah it's across the board you know i think <clears throat> excuse me i wanted to give a, a mention to Stephen carroll and graham golden as well they've worked yep. on the campaign because they're two really great guys and they have really got the the, the nature of the, the campaign and, and its interests um at the forefront of what they're doing. It's not it's not disingenuous, it's not lip service. They don't have to they don't have to be doing it. Um and I think that's it's important to keep that in mind that these are two good people and by extension then a, a, an even bigger team that are, are doing it for, for all the right reasons and yeah. criticisms are valid. They're welcome and they're necessary. Of course they are. But the the I don't think they just shut down the the purpose of the the argument because it it becomes a bit of a sort of self defeating argument, doesn't it? To to rightly say I'm very angry about this, so why are you doing this campaign? It's like well, the campaign is a it's a positive remedy to 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 what has has agreed. Yeah, to. I think you know where we get it wrong. Well, we 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 take that one, uh, and and the important thing is where we get it wrong. We look to to try and ensure that doesn't happen again, and we mm. do something to try and make it better. Yeah. And again, that guy, that's very much the start of that, and that's mm. what we're all about. Something I'm very pleased to be a part of, and also delighted that you've, you've come down today. So Not a problem at all. Thank you very Real much, pleasure. much appreciated. And thank you for listening, and as always, we'll be back with another episode of Blethered soon. Cheers. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, Natural Wonders, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.